This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 50 the second episode of the new year and here in 2022. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back as always. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is your podcast for everything related to digital transformation, the people, process, technology, and strategy components of transformation. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, as well as all the audio podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, Amazon, etc. And today we've got an exciting episode. We're going to cover uh, three major segments. The first one is uh, getting into some topics that we haven't covered in this podcast in the past, um, and that is financial technology or fintech, as people often refer to it as. Um, we're going to talk about, in our first segment, just some general uh, fintech hot topics and trends that, uh, Kyler, you're seeing in the marketplace. And uh, later in the show, we're going to have a guest, um, Dan Maurice, who's a vice president at PNC Bank, which is a financial services organization. And he's going to be on talking in more detail about fintech and financial transformation. So that's going to be kind of the, the theme here of the first two segments is on focused on uh, fintech and financial uh, transformations. And then later in the show, we'll have uh, Nate Strower, who's a director at Third Stage Consulting. He'll be on the show uh, with Kyler and I talking about uh, resistance to change and some client case studies uh, surrounding resistance to change and what some of the things are that we've seen clients do to be successful in overcoming that resistance. So. Uh, exciting for exciting show for you today, so we're we're excited to have that those conversations uh, here today. But before we jump in uh, and bring on our first guest, uh, Kyler, what are some of the things you're seeing in the whole world of fintech, or or maybe we should back up and just talk about what is fintech or financial technology? Do you do you have an, an answer for for us on that front before we jump? In? Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about fintech, we're talking about technology or um, digital evolution and transformations when it comes to financially based businesses or customer experiences. Um, it's you know something that I've learned about that I, I think is fascinating. Um, we kind of see, I I think that we see the banking or financial industry much how we see like telecommunications, really hard, really kind of these are the rules and our customers need to follow them. And as we've seen this evolution of of the term even unbanked, right? Customers that aren't actually using traditional banking services and more technology-based applications to manage their finances, whether it's actually housing their assets there or budgeting or sharing of, of um, transactions with friends, like something like Venmo which or PayPal, which we know a, a lot about. So, so the first thing I wanted to start with today, Eric, was just sharing um, four of these trends that we're seeing in the industry. And I wanted to kind of get your reaction to them specifically when it comes to cloud technology, because I know that's something that you always kind of help us level set and just know that 
that evolution into the cloud, though it's a great progress, it needs to be taken with the overall requirements and needs of the business. So when we talk about these trends, we've seen big banks such as Capital One, which has moved to Amazon Web Services, and PayPal, which is migrating to the Google Cloud platform. And an Accenture report actually forecasts that this will grow 15% per year just because of the COVID-19 pandemic and just the overall evolution of technology. A lot of consumers cite things like scalability, resilience, flexibility, access to kind of more of a public, public cloud um, is more attractive to customers. So I wondered if you could kind of give us your reaction to moving something as sensitive as financial information into these bigger cloud hosting services. Yeah, it's, I, I thought maybe where you're headed with this and maybe you're baiting me into bringing it up again. Uh, but in past episodes late last year in 2021, we had a couple episodes where we talked about the AWS outages and uh, disruptions to the to the public cloud. And I think this is, I hate to go back to that again for what a third or fourth episode in a row, but I, I kind of have to uh, given the, the nature of the question. But you do have to think about the the reliability uh, of, of some of these um, bigger cloud providers. Um, not just AWS, but any any cloud provider. And, you know, there's certainly benefit, but there's also risk to that as well. So on one hand, you have COVID that sort of, or the pandemic that sort of pushed it or accelerated this movement to the cloud for a lot of uh, software providers. Um, but on the other hand, COVID and the pandemic has also seen an increase in cybersecurity breaches and um, cloud reliability issues. And, and it could be the strains that are being put on cloud now that there's an accelerated movement toward that. But regardless of the root cause, I think that's something that people need to be aware of. Um, it's one thing if Netflix is down for a couple hours. It's another thing if you just can't access money, your money for a couple hours. That's that's probably a bigger deal, I would argue, on the longer side. Absolutely. So that's, that's my knee-jerk reaction to it is just, you know, what do you do? Yeah. And what's the backup? And is that really the best answer? Do you want to put everything in the cloud? Or, do, you know, do you, what's the, the fallback if, if all else fails? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting time to be having this conversation about fintech or financial technology because we have some people that are really worried about the economy that are burying silver and gold bricks in their backyard, right? And then we have <laughs> the evolution of, of these banking systems that are really becoming more flexible for and scalable for their customer base. So it's kind of a, a really big polarity between what you know a consumer wants in that security. And then kind of speaking of that security piece um, and the emerging technologies, another trend that they've been seeing is that banks are utilizing those AI features for things like customer information verification, cash management, financial statement reporting, um, and then those can reduce costs, um, specifically on the consumer for those fees by about 75%. So those are that seems like more of a positive when it comes to talking about financial technologies within kind of the di digital transformation or evolution space. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it is. And it's, it is fascinating how we're seeing both sides of this here play out where on one hand, there's opportunity, it's uh, cool new stuff. But on the other hand, there's risk, it's, it's change, which is always hard for all of us. Uh, there's technical risk and exposure. Um, all that good stuff. And a lot of what you're talking about too, by the way, I know you're, you're talking a lot about um, financial institutions and their use of fintech, but actually fintech is something that also applies to, uh, or can apply to most organizations and their their finance functions within non-financial services types of organizations too. So it's something that's really permeating throughout 
the consumer world as well as the, the um, business enterprises as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and number four on this trend list is actually those API integrations and utilizing it for businesses so they can not only offer that to their customers as far as uh, a smooth customer experience, but also in, in integrating all of their different platforms that houses their backend financials. So that's something that actually API management market is on course to hit $6.2 billion by 2022. For um, and and that's a you know a huge number and thinking about how businesses kind of optimize their overall financial portfolio. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a big market for sure. Absolutely, and then when we talk about kind of the fintech emerging, one thing I found that was really interesting was actually higher education is now offering master's degrees in fintech and specialized degree type of programs. And I know you do a lot of speaking um, at college courses. And I, I wondered if that was ever something that you've encountered as kind of these new emerging technologies and the specialization of young talent in that pool. You know, I haven't, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. Obviously, it is It is being uh, taught. I mean, the, I'd say the bigger trends we're seeing or that I see uh, on a personal level with, with universities is more on the data science and AI side of things. That's an area that a lot of students are, are studying. Um, having said that, usually it's IT or MIS instructors that invite me to speak in their courses, um, not so much on the finance side. So I imagine with within financial uh, majors or, or finance majors, I would imagine you're seeing more fintech discussions there, or, or at least they should be. And if, if you're a student taking courses in finance, you, you probably should take an elective on fintech or brush up on it just to be aware because it is something, as we're discussing here, that's becoming very very relevant in today's world. Yeah, um, and something we we also kind of talked about, or you talked about in your interview, is just the overall emergence of these new kind of startups within fintech and what that looks like. Uh, I know you talked about the risks kind of on the merger and acquisition side for businesses that are investing in third-party platforms as opposed to developing their own type of platform. So one that I found that was really interesting was, and I'm, I might say the name wrong, so just everyone bear with me, is Bank Aya. It's a, it's a Mexican fintech that's going offline for customer acquisition. Um, it's based in Me Mexico City, and it's a services startup that attributes his early traction to kind of going off of target consumers that are in person. Um, so their CEO is local. Um, and they, they just utilize offline channels to acquire different customers. And they have 50 million unbanked in Mexico, if you will. Uh, and they've been really successful in raising capital. And it just it kind of talked about how a lot of companies, bigger companies, U.S.-based or global, are looking to acquire them and how they've kind of tried to keep that entrepreneurial um, model in place and how long they can kind of sustain that. So it was kind of similar to what you were talking about as far as kind of that that startup opportunity. It seems like this is kind of a niche area for that. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. And it's, uh, you know, when Dan comes on the show later in my discussion with him, we'll, we'll talk about um, some of the different nooks and crannies and different niches within fintech. But it's fascinating to me how much is going on in the space because, you know, most of us or a lot of us know about Venmo and Apple Pay and sort of that consumer-facing uh, payment processing experience. 
but there's so much more to it. And that's really what I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into with, with uh, Dan later in the show. Absolutely. Definitely. And, and I think it's, it was really eye opening to me throughout his interview of all the parallels that we've kind of featured in our 2022 trend content and how that actually really is a legitimate initiative within the finance industry. And I honestly had no idea that that was going to be such a huge focus um, within fintech. I didn't even know fintech existed before this conversation. So um, we, I think there's a lot to learn from Dan, and I'm excited to kind of unpack that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it will be good. I'm, I'm, ex- I'm really excited for this conversation too because uh, – like I said, it's one of my or some of my favorite guests are the ones where I know very little to nothing about the topic. And this is an example of one. Fintech is something I just don't know a lot about. I know fintech or financial technology in the context of bigger sort of enterprise wide systems and deployments and more accounting based stuff. Um, but we'll get into with Dan is more focused on uh, financial technology, specifically for finance organizations, not just financial services or financial institutions, but finance functions within any organization as well. So if you're uh, involved in any organization, especially on the finance or accounting side, this will be something that will be very interesting to talk about. It's just interesting trends that we'll talk about here in a moment. So uh, we'll take a quick break. and When we come back, we'll have Dan Maurice from PNC Bank on talking more about some of the trends uh, in the fintech space as well as just an overview of fintech uh, as well. So we'll be right back. We'll uh, have Dan on here in just a moment. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 50. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And uh, we are live with new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, as well as all the audio podcast platforms that you might enjoy podcasts on. So be sure to subscribe to us, uh, share this with colleagues, and uh, be sure to check us out uh, every week. Because this is episode number 50, it means you've got 49 other episodes that if you haven't listened to them, you can go back and scroll and see what other stuff we've talked about. We try to cover different digital transformation topics each week. So I'm excited for our next guest. Uh, Next guest is Dan Maurice, who's an executive vice president at PNC Bank. And uh, I wanted to have Dan on the show because, as I mentioned before the break, we uh, talk about a lot of different stuff on this show, but we have yet to have talked about fintech and financial technology and financial transformations in general. So what better person to have than someone that's actually in that industry and uh, can give us some additional insights in that. So with all that being said, uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, you know what, Eric? My pleasure. Great to be here. Great. So uh, tell us a little bit about um, about yourself and maybe just a little bit about your background. If you don't mind, also share with us about PNC Bank. What, what is PNC Bank and uh, what do you do for PNC? 
Yeah, so um, I am, as you said, a senior vice president. I'm in our treasury management department. Um, I lead our treasury management and, and payments efforts in the western part of the United States for our corporate and middle market banking space. Um, you know, PNC is a you know full service uh, you know U.S. based bank um, where we offer a wide range of financial services. Um, but like I said, my specific area where I focus is on the on the the payment space and, and cash management or or treasury management. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. Um, so you and I know each other. Um, on a personal level, our kids go, one of our, our sons go to the same, the same high school uh, here in, in Denver, Colorado, where, where we're both based. Um, but you recently invited me to a, um, a, a little meeting or a, a lunch and learn sort of event that you were hosting at PNC. And you covered a lot of really cool topics related to trends in the, in the FinTech space and just a, a lot of really cool stuff, which is actually part of what sparked this, uh, this conversation, this live stream. And in that, you know, you did talk about um, a lot of trends or the, the group talked a lot about about a lot of trends in the fintech space so what maybe just to summarize for the audience what are some of the the general trends that you're seeing in the fintech or financial technology space yeah so i would say eric over you know over the last several years um the financial services industry has evolved its offerings to meet the demands of of customers expectations and security needs and you know we're all very familiar with the coronavirus pandemic and and just the the impact of of that pandemic has really compounded the need for innovative user centric digital solutions and and this is you know it's likely going to be an inflection point for the financial services industry and and this is both for consumers and for businesses and you know we you know as as i said we you know pnc operates in in all like, I shouldn't say all, but most areas of the financial services industry. And, you know, we've, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of financial technology companies out there. Um, and, and that's kind of where this conversation sparked from. And I will say from a banking perspective, um, it's kind of been an evolution over time on, on how these financial technologies were viewed from, from the banking industry. Um, and I'll get, I, let me, I'll just talk through that, you know, that kind of evolution because, you know, initially as they first started coming out, they, you know, banks, we viewed these, fintechs as, as competition. Um, you know, if you think about it, they would, you know, they're, they're very innovative and, and they would focus on a single challenge that maybe a, a business or an individual was trying to solve for. And, and they would solve for that individual challenge. Um, their, their focus has always been on the user experience and creating simple user experiences. We all demand simple and our personal lives were used to simple. Um, you know, we've all got our phones where you can, you know, do just about anything with a couple of clicks um, and and those personal experiences those we have the same expectations in our in our business lives as well mm. and you know as we talked about that competition i mean i'll tell you banks we tried to solve for everything um, we would look at a situation we try to build solutions that would solve for every customer need but if you think about the range of consumers to you know all the way up to multinational large corporates there's a lot of different things to solve for. So, um, you know, we tried to be everything for everyone. And, and so, like I said, it, it kind of started out as a competitive environment. Um, what I will say is that evolution, it has really evolved into partnerships. And, and where, you know, the financial technology companies, which I'm just gonna call FinTech for short, um, you know, we talked about they had great solutions, 
um, that solved these individual problems. And you know, one of the things that they lacked was a distribution channel, because these are generally speaking smaller organizations, startups with great ideas, great solutions. So you know, we've got the fintech here with the great solutions. Um, then you've got you know the banking side. We looked at it. Okay, so we've got the distribution channels. We've got the strict due diligence due to our regulated industry. Um, which also gives us the credibility with all of those companies and, and individuals that we have, um, you know, that we have access and, and connections with. And, and we realized that, you know, well, while banks can't build for everything, um, there was a great benefit to partnering. We've got, we've got the fintech with the solution. We've got the bank with the distribution channel and the credibility. So then we started to, you know, we started looking at how do we partner together to get these solutions out there? And then, you know, taking it even one step further, um, you know, we've got banks that are now implementing their own incubators for aspiring ideas and, and aspiring companies. And, you know, what I can say, you know, at PNC, we have an incubator we call Numo. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a place where we look at unsolved business problems and, and we look at ways to solve those problems with some of the emerging technologies that are out there. And, and I would say this, you know, this overall, evolution of customer behavior. It's, it's really why we've been focused on making treasury management, um, let's call it less transactional and, and more transformational. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of the, the evolution of where things have been and the trends that we're seeing in, you know, just in the space in general. Sure. What about, so you talk about these, these very specific problems that these fintech startups are, are trying to solve and how you know, they're not trying to be everything to everyone. They're usually a little bit smaller, more niche, more focused. What, whether it's Numo or that you, you mentioned just a moment ago or other types of technologies, what are just in general, what are some of those sort of micro uh, focused areas that the, these technologies are trying to solve? Because when I think, yeah. of things, I think of like AP, I think of AR, um, but these are, I think, a little bit different uh, sorts of technologies. What maybe could you give us some examples of what? types of technologies there are yeah well my gosh they're they're countless um they fit into everything they're they're things that we don't even realize are taking place um you know one that's uh you know i'll just i'll give an example of one that's kind of you know evolved fairly recently as a result of you know kind of the let's call it the great resignation um you know companies are are struggling with retaining and attracting talent. So anything that an organization can do to differentiate themselves from their competition, um, they're going to do it. So, you know, you think about why do we all go to work? We all go to work to get paid. And, you know, the, the problem with pay is, okay, say for instance, like you're paid every two weeks, like you've earned that money, but you're not gonna get it paid for two weeks. So people have, you know, that you fall in hard times you're you're at the grocery store and you realize you don't have enough money in your checking account to pay for your groceries you've got more you have more groceries than than what you um than what you have in your account but you know that you've earned the money from your employer so um you know this is earned wage access is something that's new to help solve for that and basically what it is it, it gives companies it gives employees the ability to go online or, or look at an app on their phone and say um, you know, I've, I've worked five days, I've earned a thousand dollars, but I'm not going to get paid for another week. They can, it's almost like a, I don't want to call it an advance, but because it's your money, you can get paid that money right now on the spot. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been, that's been a, a huge evolution here, you know, fairly recently. And a lot of work has been done in that space. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, 
there's countless other examples, but uh, it's it's uh, that that one I would say is probably one that's gaining a lot of traction right now. Yeah. So it's so a lot of this stuff is going beyond just your typical accounts payable processing accounts receivable. I mean, you're, you're getting into sort of solving, I guess, not just business problems, but also consumer problems, too. Is that is the scope of fintech? Is it is it uh, is it consumer based and business based? Is it kind of covering both both sides? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, just think about, um, you know, like transferring money from, uh, you know, if, if uh, we go out to dinner and I want to transfer, you know, you you pick up the bill and I want to and I want to pay you my half for it. I mean, there's apps that will allow you to split those bills. Um, you know, just if I want to send you money directly, I can leverage the Zelle networks as a as a consumer to send you money on that. Um, there's, you know, and and as you look at Zelle it was originally person to person and now that's expanded for, you know, business to consumer. It's a, you know, just a network where banks are actually partnering together to make it easier for people to transfer money. Mm. Very cool. Good. Um, so when you look at the, the mid market, which is where I know uh, from what I understand, PNC focuses on the mid market and our company third stage consulting focuses on the mid market as well. So we sort of have that common, um, target audience or target market on, on the business side, how do these sorts of technologies that you're talking about, how do they help these mid-market companies grow or how can they help them grow? Yeah. So, you know, I think the biggest thing is, uh, you know, these are, you know, things like this, solutions like this allow companies to focus on what their core competencies are. You know, you think about how do you make money as an organization? And, you know, this is almost like, uh, you know, let's look at it as, you know, like, outsourcing or leveraging technology instead of people to complete routine non-core tasks so that so that your organization can focus on yeah i guess focus more of your resources on the activities that make them money um you know we, we talked about the great resignation like trying to differentiate from an employee standpoint this gives an opportunity to make the work that people do more rewarding. So they're not focused on these non-core, or I shouldn't say non-core, but maybe repetitive and, and non-exciting, not rewarding tasks. It makes the work more, more rewarding um, where people can focus on those things that are more value added um, mm -hmm. and, and more in line with the strategic vision of the organization. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think it also, we talked about, you know, replicating our our personal experiences, well, everything that we can do from our phone, those simple experiences, um, you know, I'll probably come back to that a couple times, but giving employees the same simple experiences that in their business lives that they're used to in their personal lives um, and, and just what we've come to expect. And, um, you know, I, I think about, you know, retention, um, you know, I'll come back to that a lot because every organization I talk to, every company I talk to, that's, that's the, you know, one of the biggest things they're trying to solve for. But we've, you know, I've seen people, I'm sure you've seen people too, that have made decisions to leave organizations because they felt it was just the work was too manual. Um, things were too disorganized. It just wasn't, it wasn't the experience that they wanted to. So they figured they'd go somewhere else and try something different. So, it, you know, it's also, it's a retention thing as well. Um, and, and, you know, these examples, I mean, that's really that it underscores kind of what we've been focused on as an organization, um, you know, just and I'll talk for a little bit about PNC, um, you know, one task in, in specific when it comes to finance is uh, cash forecasting and 
you know, up until fairly recently, cash forecasting has been a very manual, labor-intensive, time-consuming process. Um, and, you know, what we've done here is just leveraging artificial intelligence, machine learning, company historical data. We've, um, you know, we've developed a way that, um, that you can actually streamline that whole process. Um, it's, you know, we call it pinnacle cash forecasting, but, uh, you know, the, the goal of the whole project was to give treasurers and, you know, organizations more time to actually use the, the cash forecasting versus just spending time building it. So, you know, that's really, it's, it's making people more effective and efficient in, in their jobs. And they, they can spend more time thinking and analyzing versus trying to figure out what the forecast is and, and manually collecting all that data or manually pulling it all together. Yeah. Yeah. Spreadsheets. Listen, Excel is great, but uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to do that stuff. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. We want, we want those folks focused on strategy. Yeah. Especially if you're a CFO or a controller or, you know, kind of a high level finance or accounting person, that, that's, that's what you should be doing. All right. Thanks a lot, Dan. We're going to continue the conversation here in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Dan Maurice. We're talking about financial tech and fintech in general. Let's jump right back into the conversation. Now, what about um, when an organization is going through any sort of financial transformation, whether it be technology changes or process changes, organizational changes, or all of the above? What are some of the um, what are some of the biggest risks that you see and that your your customers are seeing? Um, you know, I think there's there's a couple things. Uh, you know, I think the the biggest one that uh, you know that I that I see frequently is the misperception that adding technology will fix a broken process. Um, just simply adding technology into a broken process will, sometimes it can, but a majority of the time, it's not going to fix a broken process. Um, really what, what needs to be done is, uh, you know, organizations need to address the inefficiencies in the process, like find out where the problems actually exist uh, you know, that's going to give you a much better picture of where those problems are, and then you can look to supplement or fix those problems, like fix the problems first and then supplement with technology. Um, because, you know, what you could end up doing is just adding technology to a broken process, which just compounds the problem. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that, uh, you know, that I've seen, and I don't know, this is, you know, fairly recently, but uh, 
you know, trying to incorporate too many different technologies um, or too many vendors into, into a process. Um, you know, for instance, like, let's just say, you know, let's just say that you've got six different technologies to, to help solve a problem. Um, if something breaks within that process, like it, it's, uh, you know, you think about your employees, your staff, they're not really going to know who to call. And, and you end up in a situation where there's a lot of, there could potentially be a lot of finger pointing. Nobody wants to say that it's, you know, it's my problem. They're going to say that it's somewhere else in the process. And if you're just trying to fix the thing and you don't know who to call, can get extremely frustrating for people. Um, you know, another, you know, another challenge by, you know, having too many different, you know, too many different technology is you start running into integration issues. You know, one thing may not talk to another just exactly how you want it to. Um, you know, that kind of ties back to the same thing with six different technologies. And, and I'm just using that as a, you know, random example, but um, you run into those integration issues when things don't talk to each other. And the end result is the opposite of that simple experience that we're really going for. Right. Um, you know, the, the other is, you know, just making sure that you vet out what you're really looking for and what you're trying to solve for. And, um, you know, the, let's call it the, the strength and stability of, of who you're working with. There is a lot of consolidation in the, in the space, in the FinTech space specifically, because there's new organizations popping up every day. And somebody may come up with the best solution for the, the single problem that you have, and you may end up going down a path and you might buy that technology to fix that problem. Um, only find out six months, a year, 18 months down the road, that organization gets acquired because they did such a great job. But the acquiring company decides that, you know what, this isn't going to be one of our core areas. And they just discount, they, they stop supporting that, that particular piece. So, um, you know, then you're left looking for another one. So I would say making sure that you vet out, you know, who you're going with. Um, it, it's, it's really important. And, you know, I will say like, these are the issues, like these things that we've seen. Um, that's exactly why we've been investing significantly in, you know, in our capabilities at, at PNC, just trying to build a platform that's nimble, that's secure, that's seamless for our clients. Um, you know, we, the, you know, the incubator is, you know, that's a, that's a big part of why we developed that incubator so that, it's, you don't have to, so companies don't have to try to figure out like, who should we work with? Let the banks do the vetting. We're, we're heavily regulated. So let us vet these companies out. Um, and, and then you kind of help yourself out a little bit. So, yeah. and, and listen, like these things that I'm sharing with you right now, that's not always the case. Like there's some very, like there's some great organizations. I mean, it's, it's just amazing what, what's being developed. So it's, it's a very, you know, for, for in the payment space, it's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you actually hit on a couple of really uh, good points that um, are relevant to even outside the world of finance. If you just look at technology and uh, organizational transformations, business transformations in general, you know, they struggle with a lot of these same trade-offs as far as like, do I, do I go implement a really big, broad technology that kind of ties together the entire organization, even outside of finance? Um, but you can't, but those systems can't be everything to everyone. And so a lot of times what they struggle with is do I get a big common ERP enterprise wide system, or do I go find these, these uh, niche solutions that fill in certain and solve and solve certain problems. And that's sort of what you're talking about here is it's these really niche solutions that have found a problem that the big software solutions can't seem to solve or can't solve well. 
Um, but it it shifts the risk now. Now you've solved that problem. Now you've created this other problem, which is the two things you mentioned, which is now we've got to figure out how to integrate the systems and or um, we might have a problem with the sort of the overall viability of that vendor. Is that vendor going to be around? It's a startup. It's only been in business for two years or whatever. Um, or is someone going to acquire them and, and we don't like the, the direction that goes? So I think there's um, there's a lot of a lot of merit to that. And actually, if, if you don't mind, I want to ask, a, there's an audience question here that's directly related to what I what you and I were just saying. Um, and this is from, and thank you everyone who's joining live today. And, and uh, thanks for uh, chiming in on where you're from. It looks like we've got people from all over the world here, Toronto, um, US, Latin America, I see so far, um, et cetera. But the question I want to get to is from uh, Leonard on LinkedIn. He has the question of, uh, is there a NetSuite-like fintech company out there? Um, and so, so NetSuite is a pretty broad, you know, a lot of companies use it for fi their financials and accounting and that sort of thing, but they also use it for inventory management and other things outside of finance. Um, so is there, is there a fintech company out there that's kind of like the net suite of that space or in terms of the common, you know, wide adoption or, um, I don't know, is it, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so I will say if you're looking for like a, I think I'm going to interpret this question as I think it's coming through, um, you know, is there an ERP provider that's, uh, you know, maybe smaller and, and more nimble. And, and honestly, I mean, I, I would say that's kind of how NetSuite started out. Um, you know, and, and it's, I mean, NetSuite's a great example of one of those companies that has really, uh, you know, made a, made a lot of, uh, they've done a great job. And, and so what I will say is from a banking perspective, from an integration standpoint, um, you know, we, and there's, there's a lot of organizations out there like this, but integrating with NetSuite, that integration piece is, has become critical. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what, uh, what we're focused on. I, uh, I would say that, you know, recently we just rolled out, uh, you know, it's called, uh, it's called Pinnacle Connect and, and what it does. And, and maybe this can kind of, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go down a different path here. Hopefully this answers the question, maybe gives a little more about it. But, uh, you know, banks have really been looking for ways to integrate with, you know, integration has always been key. So how do we integrate with, with uh, you know, these various ERPs and NetSuite's a great example. We've been working for a, a while now on, on that particular problem or, or to, to solve for that because organizations don't want to necessarily go into a banking portal. They don't want to, people don't want to go into multiple different systems. They want to, they want to stay within their primary system or their primary ERP and, and transact business there. So we actually came up with a direct connect. Um, it's called Pinnacle Connect that actually integrates with NetSuite. So instead of having to log into NetSuite and then log into say the, you know, Pinnacle, which is our online banking platform, um, all of your work, all of your all of your reporting can be done right within right within NetSuite. So you set up that adapter. There's there's other examples like that, but that's been a you know a, a big focus over the years to try and to try and do that work in a single system in in you know your main system of record or your main ERP. So, but as far as you know, uh, Leonard's question on is there a you know a, a fintech like NetSuite? Yeah, there's there's hundreds, maybe thousands of them out there. Um, that are, you know, starting up and finding how they're going to solve for those business needs. Yeah. seems like it's a, it's a very fragmented space, you know, with a lot of, a lot of newcomers cropping up all over the place. 
Yeah, I, I, we learn about a new ERP, and I'm sure you do too. Like we we learn about a new one probably every week. Um, mm -hmm. You know, haven't heard of that one before. Do your research and figure out how we can integrate with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, sort of along those same lines, while we're talking about um, you know the the technology specific stuff, and then we'll get back to some of these other questions that I have for you. Um, and it, there's a question here from Abdul uh, on YouTube who's watching on YouTube and he says, or he asks, can the business tra transformation happen using a fully open source technology stack? Um, and maybe I'll shift the question a little bit, uh, or redirect the question a little bit. Is, is there in the FinTech space is open source a thing or is it more kind of the proprietary, uh, lockdown, uh, sort of technology that that's, uh, harder to, harder to customize, if you will. Um, so that is a great question. I will probably, as much as I would love to answer that question, I don't know that I would be the best person to answer that question. Um, sure. <laughs> I haven't, you know, me personally, I have not heard of an open source fintech solution. I know there's open source ERP systems like, um, Odoo and ERP next are two examples and they do financials, they have financial modules, but if you start talking about um, some of the stuff you're talking about, like with the, uh, you know, cash forecasting and pay advances and things like that. Um, I don't, I don't know of any open source systems in the fintech space, but that, that's, that's, that's a blind spot of mine. I don't know. It just, maybe that I don't know that they're out there. Um, so good, good question though. Yeah. Sorry. I don't have a better answer for you. I, I don't have a good answer either. Um, yeah. <laughs> so when, when an organization is going down the path of a financial transformation and uh, presumably, you know, CFO is sort of the executive sponsor or the person within the organization driving it from a, from a senior executive perspective, how, how can CFOs ensure that they're on the right track with their transformations? What, what are some of the tips or advice you'd have for, for them? Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, it's, uh, I, I'm going to start with culture. Um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, you need to make sure that you've got the right, you know, the folks with the right mindset. You need a culture of change and growth um, and, and a team that's going to support that change. Um, you know, transform, I mean, it's, it's in the word, it's change. Transformation is change. And we all know that change is not easy. And, and you, you need to have those people with the abilities that can, that can look forward on what things could be versus looking backwards on the way that things used to be. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, it, it takes a, it takes a special, you know, a, a special group to be able to do that. Um, you know, that, so that's where it starts. I would say the, you know, the other thing would be to, you know, get multiple opinions and, and get those opinions from trusted advisors. And, you know, I, I will say that there's, a, you know, the, the RFP process, I'm going to speak specifically to this. And, and it, uh, you know, I, I feel like when you're going down a track of, you know, you want innovation, you want transformation. Sometimes I've seen where the RFP process will slow things down. And I know it's a very common practice to issue an RFP. We've got a problem we want to solve for this problem. Let's issue an RFP. Um, the, the challenge with issuing an RFP is that you're asking organizations to only respond to the questions and, and the problems that, that you have uncovered versus allowing for dialogue and, and creativity. And, um, you know, I, I will say an alternative, and I've seen this fairly recently, fairly recently from a couple of companies is like a, what I'll call a modified RFP. And it's kind of more of a, like a, like a whiteboarding brainstorming session. And, and the company brings, you know, their, their trusted advisors in and, and they share with what do they want things to look like? Where do they want to be? 
here's where we think our problems are. But you ask those providers like, hey, what are, you know, what are the problems that we're missing um, and how would you solve for them? And, and I've seen situations, I've seen this become very effective because it, it allows for that, that brainstorming, that two-way dialogue. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it, it might take a little more work, but I think the, you know, on, on, the, on behalf of the organizations that's issuing it, but I think your end result is you're going to get something that's a little more collaborative that everybody's got a part in. And it's, uh, I, I think you get a little more creative and innovative with it. Um, and you get a really good picture of what's, you know, what's out there. Um, you know, and, and I, I guess maybe I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but, you know, sometimes to consider before even doing that, um, I'd recommend having an outside party document the process and, and gaps. Um, you know, and, and what I love about this is because, you know, you think about it, like you might feel like there's a problem somewhere within your process or within your organization. You feel like it's there, but you can't quite put your finger on where that breakdown is. Um, bring someone in, bring in an outside perspective, have an outside party identify, like, here's what the process is today. Here's the, here's the bottleneck. Here's the breakdowns in the process, um, you know, and have them document that for you to help get that outside perspective. Um, you know, you can, you can work with consultants. There's plenty of consulting organizations that will do that. Um, you know, there's also, you know, you can look to, there's banks and financial technology companies that will, that will provide this service as well. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a great, uh, you know, here at PNC, we'll offer what's called a diagnostic for, our, you know, for our customers where, you know, we've had plenty of people, um, CFOs, you know, wherever it may be that they feel like there's something in their process that's not quite right. And, and doing that work ahead of time to identify where to focus your efforts, um, just helps, helps keep it, uh, you know, dialed into what you really want to solve for and, and what you really want your outcome to be. Right. I'm sure you can appreciate that, Eric. <laughs> I can. Yeah. And in fact, I was going to clarify one point. You said there's a lot of consulting firms out there that can help with this. But what you didn't say is not <laughs> really good as third stage consulting and doing exactly what you just said. <laughs> Which is what I meant. It's what yeah, I, I meant. I, sorry. I... <laughs> yeah, I, I know. What you, I knew what you meant. I just want to clarify for the audience what, what you're really saying. All right. Thanks a lot, Dan. We're going to continue the conversation here in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Dan Maurice. We're talking about financial tech and fintech in general. Let's jump right back into the conversation. So along those lines, though, what kind of a role? So before I ask the question, let me back up. When yeah. I went to that event that you guys hosted at PNC, um, 
a couple months ago now. Um, there was, I, I guess I didn't realize that a banking relationship can be more than just, I'm going to put, I'm going to set, sit my money in the bank. You're going to, you know, you're going to do the payroll for me. I'm going to access a line of credit. You're going to help me with fun, financing and stuff like that. That's how I've always thought of banks. But at this conference that I went to with you guys at, with, at PNC, I realized, well, there's a lot more to this banking relationship, or there can be a lot more to the banking relationship in terms of really helping more strategically, helping finance organizations go through their transformations. So how how does a bank like PNC or, or PNC in particular, how do you guys help uh, organizations and CFOs and the executive teams through their financial transformations? What are some examples of ways you would help? Well, you know what, and that's, so you are that misperception of, you know, it's a transactional relationship. Um, that's, that, I mean, that's exactly why we've been focused on this is to make it less transactional and, um, you know, and, and more transformational. So, um, yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. I, I'm glad the session paid off. Um, right. you know, it's, uh, you know, if we just kind of, you know, maybe zoom out for a second, um, you know, you think about banks and, uh, you know, we talked about that outside perspective and, and banks, especially like the treasury management department. So the, you know, the, the team that, that I lead here, um, we sit in a very unique position. Um, we have the ability to see how many different companies operate across, across a wide range of industries, uh, you know, across a wide range of team sizes and, and revenue sizes. So we get to get a lot of different perspectives, not just what works well in one organization or uh, on the flip side, what doesn't work well. So we just kind of get that unique perspective. You think about, you know, the, you know, the average lifespan in an organization, people stick with an organization for five, 10, 40 years. I know that's more or less, I guess that's less common now that somebody will be with the same organization for their entire career. But, you know, let's say throughout, you get to see maybe three different organizations, five different organizations we get to see that many in a week, sometimes, you know, a day. So um, we do bring that outside perspective on what works well, what we've seen work well, and, and what we've seen people struggle with. Um, you know, I would say that the, you know, overall, your, your bank is or should be very well plugged into emerging trends. And, and they can share what, you know, what leading companies are focused on. These are the problems that you may not be thinking about that you should be keeping, that you should be thinking about, you know, instead of asking the question, hey, what, what keeps you up at night? Um, we can tell you, hey, this, if it's not keeping you up at night, this is something that you pro that probably should be keeping you up at night. Not to, you know, not to create additional problems, but, you know, those things that you're not thinking about that you should be thinking about. And, like the blind spots. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's those, those changes and, you know, just what those leading organizations are doing. And, and this is one of those things I always preface with. I mean, these, you know, the organizations that are the leaders, um, they're, they're the leaders for a reason. They're, they're the leaders because they're willing to do the things that aren't easy. And, and, you know, because if it was easy, everyone would do it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Yeah, and I think those are those are good uh, good points as far as uh, you know ways ways to help and uh, you know it's, it's just fascinating that there's a lot more to it you know to or there can be a lot more to the banking relationship um, and really kind of viewing finance and accounting as more of a strategic function within these organizations versus a 
you know, a necessary evil back office sort of uh, function that, uh, um, so it's, it's just a, a mindset shift in a lot of ways, it seems. Well, it is. And, and, you know, you think about your treasury team, the, you know, a lot of, and, and a lot of treasury teams, you know, I was just at, uh, you know, a national conference, the Association for Financial Professionals uh, National Conference in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. And, you know, it's, it's, it consists of a lot of providers, you know, such as, you know, banks, financial technology, just your, your normal vendors. But there was also a strong representation from treasurers within various organizations. And those are the conferences where we talk about emerging trends like these are this is what's going on. So the Treasury, you know, the Treasury Department becomes the strategic kind of the strategic thought leader for for the organization because they are plugged into that kind of stuff. And and these are the technologies that are out there. These are the things that we should be thinking about. This is what this is what our customers are focused on. And, and really, a lot of this stuff is driven by, uh, you know, what are you know, what do our customers need? What what are their demands? Um, what do they want from their their trading partners? So um, Treasury is definitely, you know, in my 19 years in, in banking, I've seen Treasury become a lot more strategic than what I think it once was. Right. Yeah. Uh, quite a bit different than it was uh, recently. So you're, you're starting to segue into my next question, which, uh, you know, we could we could probably easily spend the whole hour just on this one question, but uh, maybe we can sort of skim the surface or, or cherry pick some some thoughts here. But what are some other general trends that we haven't talked about um, in the corporate banking and finance space? And in particular, you know, I think of stuff like crypto and artificial intelligence and other, you know, emerging technologies that are really changing the way finance and banking work. What are, what are some of the other trends you're seeing? Yeah, that's a, oh my gosh, yes, we could have a whole session on that one. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about some of the big ones. I did touch on one of them a little bit earlier, but I, I think it's it's worth mentioning again. It's it's the integration, um, ease of integration between systems and technology. Um, you know, we, we talked about simple, everybody, personal business, everybody wants simple. And, and what we're trying to solve for right now, I, I mean, I guess this kind of, you know, this was driven from, you know, just the, the change in the way technology is, let's call it, I don't know, consumed, this is, is the right word, but, uh, you know, you think about an ERP, the move from on-premise, um, you know, from a banking standpoint, everything was done by file transmissions. The bank would say like, hey, this is, oh, you wanna, you wanna send a payment file, here's the format that you need to send us. And, you know, the, the company would be, okay, we'll, we'll meet your, you know, you get your IT team involved, you get your programmers, developers involved and you create the file in the format that the bank wants so that you can send them a payment file. And, and that's great when, when you've got that on-premise and, and you own that technology. So you send out your batch file. Well, the emergence of these cloud-based you know, solutions and, and APIs, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's no longer like, hey, here's you know, from the bank, here's the file format that we want. It's, we want a, a more seamless integration. We don't want to send you a file. Um, you know, we want to we want to transact. We talked about like NetSuite and and that Pinnacle Connect Connect adapter. Um, we want to transact business in our system. We want to send. You know, we we don't want to send you a, a batch payment file. We're going to you know as as AP approved pay, approves payments. We just want those payments to go out in whatever method. Um, we don't want to wait till the end of the day to send you a single file. So. So that's where a lot of the focus has been is has really been on that integration, um, and and there's you know there's organizations popping up that are you know third parties that are out there that are helping to facilitate that integration, um, so that it's easy for you know, for the for the end user. 
Um, and, and again, I'll, um, it's worth saying again, but that's where, you know, that Pinnacle Connect, our focus on that has been huge. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's other examples of that as well. Interesting. Uh, um, you know, I would say the, you know, the other thing that, you know, that we're seeing a lot of, there's a lot of discussion around is, you know, data and, and data driven decisions and, and how to effectively use data. You know, we hear a lot about big data and, um, so, you know, we, even on, you know, on the banking side as well, we're trying to figure out how do we use data to, to provide more value, to make better decisions. Every company I work with, they're trying to figure out how do we leverage the data that we have to make it more effective. Um, and, and I, you know, if I had the answer, I, I would probably be on an island right now, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't have the answer for that, but that is, that's, there's a lot of discussion around data and, and, you know, the effective use of it. Um, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, how are we leveraging artificial intelligence to, um, you know, to, to help take the people out of the equation. Um, you know, the, the cash for the cash forecasting module that I talked about earlier, like that's, uh, you know, there's, you know, that's the, let's call that the tip of the iceberg. Like there's so much more that, uh, you know, there, there's so much more work that can be done in that space. And, um, you know, just, uh, you know, payments overall from a payment standpoint. I mean, really what's driving the evolution in some of these areas and these new things coming to market, it's the customer experience. And, and this is what, this is where people are focused. Um, you know, we talked about Zelle earlier, like that, that simple, that simple way to transfer funny, to transfer money from person to person. Um, you know, that's, we want that same experience in our business lives as well. Um, I'll, I'm going to hit on like, I mean, it's, it's specific to payments, but real-time payments, RTP, you think about your traditional payment methods, you used to have checks, you had ACH, you had wire, you've got card payments. Um, we haven't had a new payment rail in, in years. Um, real-time payments is the first new payment rail in years. And it's, uh, it, you know, PNC was one of the first to adopt into this new payment network. But if you think about these are like, when it's real-time payments, we're talking real-time payments. It's immediate payments. It's, it's payments that can be made 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, um, you know, guaranteed funds. There's, you know, there's, there's limitations, of course, because it's newer, but, um, you know, for instance, like it's a, a I'm pretty sure it's a hundred thousand dollar limit is what you can send right now. But, uh, you know, next year it's going up to a million dollar limit. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of banks that are already on the network and, and more are being added every single month. And, you know, we, you know, I've, I've just this week alone, I was on a, you know, in a meeting where a, a large organization, one of our, one of our corporate clients, is trying to figure out how do we leverage this? Like, you know, thinking forward, like it's it's not fully built out yet. There's, you know, there's a lot of things that are in, you know, I want to say proof of concept, but pilot. And and looking at the use cases, like how do we implement this new payment rail to give us a leg up and to make our customer experience better than the experience they get with our competitors? Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, it is, you know, for if there's anyone that, uh, you know, is passionate about payments like I am, that one, <laughs> that one is very exciting. And there's going to be, it, it's going to make a lot of, uh, it's, it's going to disrupt a lot of things from the traditional ways that payments are made. You know, our existing payment rails will still sit there, but um, right. this one, that one's pretty cool. Just giving people more options and more convenient ways to, to yeah. Have it. Yeah. And, and a lot of it from the payment side, it's, you know, dollars and data, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's, 
moving money has actually become fairly easy. It's, you know, moving money with the data um, that, that you need to go with that payment. That's the part that's kind of been the hang up over, you know, as, as we move to this electronification of payments. So dollars and data and, and RTP gives you the ability, real-time payments gives you the ability to move dollars. And, and, and not that those other payment rails can't, it's just, uh, you know, it, it wasn't what they were initially created for. It was, you know, they were just a, you know, a movement of money platform. Right. Right. Now, um, when you talk about, um, data, uh, what, what about is, is data, when you think of data, are you, th are you also seeing changes or, uh, emerging technologies or trends on, on more of kind of the financial reporting and consolidation side of things as well? Or are you thinking more at the transactional level or, or is it both? You know, I, it, it it is really both. It is really both. I mean, we talked about from a cash forecasting standpoint, like leveraging that data, you know, historical data to make future decisions and forecast out for the future. But it's also, you know, how do you use how do you use your customer data? You know, think about an organization like, you know, um, you know, how can you share data between accounts payable, accounts receivable, and and what what's the benefit of it? I guess that's that's the piece of it. Like, what is there on one side versus the other, and and kind of keeping that communication open. Um, you know, we look at that from a banking standpoint too, is we handle a lot of payments, you know, outgoing payments for organizations and, and for clients. We also take a lot of payments in. So where's the, um, you know, how, how can that data help out? How can it help our customers to be more successful? Is there something that we can provide for them? And, and, you know, I, I think every company is trying to, trying to solve for that. Like how do, how do we leverage the data that we have and make it a, a effective and efficient and useful right right because there's a lot of there's you know you got to weed through to find the good stuff because there's there's plenty of it out there it's it's a matter of finding the you know the impactful piece of it relevant yeah, yeah absolutely so one thing that we haven't uh, touched on uh yet is uh crypto um how does how does crypto fit into this whole uh you know as far as uh payments and and that sort of thing what, what are you seeing on that front yeah, so um, you know, I guess it's uh, it's a you know obviously it's a it's a newer technology, newer payment method. Um, we you know are trying to you know as an organization, we're just trying to um, figure out how it can be you know how do we leverage it? Um, you know the the um, the the underlying technology, you know, as you talk about blockchain, um, you know, there's there's just a there's a lot to be explored there. And and while there's discussions happening on you know on the bank side, um, it's you know I I think we we just need to we need to figure out how we as a as a bank and as an organization, it's uh you know how do we leverage that? And yeah that's kind of, you know, that's kind of where we're at right now. There's, there's a lot of different use cases that are being put forward. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people are just trying to figure out how do we use it? What's, what's going to be most efficient. Right. So I know, you know, being that you work for a large bank that's highly regulated and you, in some ways you have to be careful uh, what you say, I want to ask you this question, how much of my money should I invest in crypto right now? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, I appreciate everything uh, you've shared here today. Um, how can people 
learn more about PNC if they're looking for you know a new banking relationship or they just want to learn more about PNC or about you? What, oh my gosh, thing? yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, well, if you don't have a relationship with PNC, um, you know, it, well, if you do have a relationship with PNC, definitely talk to your relationship team or you know your treasury management officer. Um, I would say that if you don't have a relationship with PNC and you'd like to get more information, um, you know, I'll, I'll direct you to PNC.com. Great place. I, I mean, we're, a, you know, a, a, you know, large financial services organization. So, you know, if it's specifically on the payment space, you know, treasury management, that's going to be that's going to be the group that you want to work with, um, depending on where you are. Um, you know, if you're not in the western part of the United States, which looking at where uh, a lot of folks have have. Uh, you know, joined us from today, um, you know, I can find out, you know, we can certainly find the right people for you. So um, yeah, excited to have a discussion. And um, this is, you know, for some people, this is exciting stuff. I'm one of those people, Eric, you're obviously one of those people as well. So um, right. we, you yeah. and I might be a little biased, but yes, I, <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, you know, there's, there are, there are people uh, watching the show and listening into that, that I'm sure find it interesting as well. So all right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks very much for being here. Really appreciate your time here today. Really interesting stuff. I, I learned a lot in that conversation. There's a lot I know now that I did not know before this interview and this podcast. So thank you for being here. In fact, uh, Kyler and I'll pick up a few threads that uh, you mentioned there uh, during our discussion. We'll pick up on it here after we take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Grunk. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 50. Uh, covering a lot here today talking about digital transformation, in particular, fintech and financial technologies. Uh, fascinating discussion. What do you think, Kyler? Absolutely. I learned so much. I know I say this every week, but I learned so much here. And again, I, I always saw um, kind of the financial industry, and I have no background in, in finance. It honestly scares me. So I, I wouldn't even like have, <laughs> have gone um, that way. But I always kind of saw it as like the like the law of God, if you will, you know, like th this is how we do things. And if you don't do them that way, then that's not how it's going to work. Um, I even remember opening one of my businesses and I had to call uh, Christy Barber, who's one of our senior consultants, to ask her how to talk to the bank because I was just so confused. And she had to like take me through it because she's a, a very talented um, on the accounting side. Um, so it's it's kind of one of those things that was so refreshing to hear an executive at a large banking industry or a banking entity um, focus so much on kind of the evolution of, of how they can be more effective for not only their customers, but their business processes as well. So something that I thought was really interesting that I kind of wanted to dig a little deeper in was that um, 
earn wage access that we talked about or you guys talked about and actually giving kind of live, if you will, real-time access to an employee's um, payments, which I have never even considered in my entire life. Like you, you kind of just know it's the norm when you start a new job, you're going to have to wait oh, two weeks to a month to kind of really get your first paycheck because that's just how it goes through the system. And there's been many times kind of in my corporate career, and I'm sure yours too, Eric, where it's kind of been like you get paid when you get paid and that's, that's how it works. Um, so I, I just wondered from a technical standpoint, is that something that would be kind of an, an additional application as far as what a, a business would use for kind of their back office payroll? Or like from a technical standpoint, is that even really possible? It sounds like it is. Um, but I wonder if you could kind of give us kind of just some insight and kind of how that would play out as far as businesses integrating that into their overall processes or strategies. Well, it, it's, it was an interesting discussion because I too did not know that that technology existed or that that was even a thing, but it, it reminded me actually of, of, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, um, at least in the United States, I, I don't know how this played out or if it played out this way globally, but in the United States where you and I are based, um, there is a kind of a crackdown on, on payday, um, loan advance types of organizations where you take your pay stub or you would take your proof of income to a, basically a loan shark that would charge you a really high interest rate to give you an advance on your paycheck. And the U S government, I think about 20 years ago, I want to say it was in the early 2000s. They really cracked down on that and put, you know, pretty strict boundaries in place on what you could and couldn't do and how much you could charge. And I, and I don't know if it's as prevalent today as it was back then, but what it sounds like is, A, there's still clearly a need there for that um, to the extent that they're developing technologies to address that, that need in the market. Um, but B, you know, is that something that's, that's sort of a, a maturing area that's eventually exposing itself to regulations across the world later on? But, you know, I think, I suppose there's two conflicting schools of thought on that. One is you're satisfying a need, you're giving people access to money that they wouldn't otherwise have. The other school of thought is you're taking advantage of people and you're charging them a lot of money to give them money that they haven't yet received in their paychecks. Um, so I don't know if that directly answers your question. I don't think it does. I think I'm just going off on a complete tangent there. Um, but <laughs> hopefully it's an interesting one. But I, I found it really interesting because I had no idea that, that that even existed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think back to, um, you know, the human capital management, which is a huge trend for 2022 and overall talent acquisition and and kind of utilizing that for uh, a business value for specifically young professionals. You know, as young people, a lot of times don't have that excess income. So stretching pay to, paycheck to paycheck can be a challenge for them. You know, I remember back to my young days when it was like, oh, I get paid on Thursday, going to the grocery store on Thursday night, you know, eating crackers until then type of thing. So it's, a, I think it's a huge value add specifically for, you know, keeping people within your workforce and, and adding that value or benefit. Um, one of the other things that I thought was, was really interesting um, that kind of goes along with one of the trends that we talked about in business intelligence in our 2022 trend episodes uh, was kind of that tech band-aid approach. Like the technology is not going to be the solve. It could often dilute the solve or complicate it further as opposed to being the solution. And business process is really where that core 
strategy and and overall um, technology or overall strategy comes from um, to make the business more optimized. So I thought that was so interesting that he not only cited that um, in that when you have a broken process, you actually bring in a specialist to kind of look at that. And from a finance perspective, there's so many regulations and security issues. It was interesting to me that he recommended doing that as a business um, in kind of that overall industry. And I, I wondered if you had a similar reaction or something something along the same lines. Yeah, I, I found it interesting too, uh, for sure. And, it, and again, it's just such uncharted territory and uh, so different in both in you and I share this and that we, this is more of a blind spot for us or an area that we didn't know a lot about. Um, but seeing how much is out there and how, how many different needs can be filled, uh, in this space using some of these different technologies. And I think that could be such a huge asset, especially to smaller businesses when that might not be kind of their wheelhouse, um, utilizing different third-party consultants or anything like that to kind of look at these processes and say, hey, this is where the opportunity is, and you could fix this right now today without new technology and just the overall investment that you may save from that or recommending a specific niche technology that's going to be the best option to fit your needs. Um, so it always, it always, um, you know, it's so interesting to me that no matter the industry we're in, whether we're talking about food and beverage or manufacturing or finance or any of those things, business intelligence still remains a main piece, whether it's through AI or data uh, and utilizing that for, you know, data-driven strategies, those types of things, which also Dan mentioned in his interview as well. Yeah, it is it is interesting. And, and it's, uh, I guess, a good, these are some good case studies of how AI and data can be used to provide a better solution to uh, organizations and their customers. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier the kind of employee experience or human capital management and how some of these solutions are providing that um, or are enabling that focus on HCM. But I think your point that you're you're getting at or one that you, you alluded to is the process-driven approach or the uh, strategy-based approach of figure out what it is you're trying to accomplish first and what your priorities are, what your strategy is, and then figure out how the technology can better support that. Um, on the flip side, I suppose, though, you could say, well, in some cases, like in if you and I were, were running companies that might benefit from these technologies, we may not know enough to know to define a strategy that could take advantage of these technologies. So the technologies themselves might influence our um, our strategies and our processes as well. So it's it, it's a good reminder that you kind of have to have both. You don't want to lead too much with the technology. You want to you want your strategy to kind of sit in the driver's seat, but technology can certainly enable some of those changes in ways that you wouldn't have otherwise realized potentially. Absolutely. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, I have a thousand questions, by the way, and most of them are for Dan and not for you. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I, I wanted to raise my hand the whole, um, but you weren't answering any of my questions on the live one. I don't know why, you know, as, <laughs> but um, when we're talking about mergers and acquisitions of systems, again, something I never considered. We talked a little bit about how this has become a really hot kind of startup area in creating those partnerships, as Dan was talking about. Is that something that's common just with within um, digital transformation in general, where you might look at a system? It seems like it's a bit different because we do kind of have like a core group of systems that really aren't in the ballpark of being acquired just because they're very large. You know, that would be a huge acquisition. 
and probably a, a lot of industry buzz around it. It seems like this is the first time I've heard of an industry that 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 has to be a consideration within the evaluation process for customers. Yeah, and and I think actually it's it's maybe even bigger than that. I mean, I think it's um, not just in this industry. I think every industry, every functional area within any given industry is going to have uh, certain um, certain niches and certain uh, emerging needs that new startups, new technology providers are going to address, new problems are going to solve. So I think that's uh, probably the biggest the biggest change there is that, or the biggest thing you're, you're pointing at is there's always these, these emerging companies that are going to be able to address these, these needs. And, but at the same time, you are, you're always going to have those bigger ERP enterprise wide type providers that don't do those things very well, which is why those startups came up in the first place. And so it's a matter of, of, uh, finding that right balance, I guess you'd say, you know, addressing specific needs, but also addressing the broader, uh, enterprise technology needs as well. So when, if you're working with a client that might be kind of in this financial space, is that something that the third stage team will consider when they're recommending different systems? Yeah, it is. And in fact, um, you know, people oftentimes ask us like, well, how could you know about all these different little bits and pieces of technologies that are out there? You know, a lot of what we publish in the marketplace, like on our YouTube channel, and even in this podcast um, we talk a lot about the big names, you know, Microsoft D365 and SAP, Oracle and um, AWS, you know, some of these big technology providers. But we have a database of uh, close to a thousand different technologies of all different types that we use to evaluate to figure out what technologies are out there, first of all, so we can keep a pulse on that. But also, what do those technologies do? What are the strengths and how do they compare to one another? So that database is something we use to help our clients through the whole evaluation process to potentially think of systems that they hadn't thought of before, because oftentimes organizations, when they are thinking about their digital strategy and roadmap, they're just thinking about the big names, the big uh, kind of um, household names when it comes to technology. But there's a ton of these little startups and even established companies that have been around forever. They do things really well, certain things really well, but they're tiny little niche providers for a very specific need or solution that they're trying to solve. Yeah, and then I, I assume that conversation has to happen of saying, like, this is a great solution right now, but just be mindful of this is a smaller system that, you know, might be acquired by someone else. Is that kind of how that conversation yeah. goes? Yeah, and that, that I missed that part of your original question. I fully know. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm jumping all over the place here today and answering everything except for what you're asking. That's okay. Um, I'll answer my own questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But uh, yeah, you do have to think about uh, vendor viability is what we call it when we're doing a software evaluation. So you look at how stable is the vendor, uh, what is their ecosystem, how much are they spending on R&D, how many consultants are out there that know the product. So you can never predict the future with 100% certainty. You never know if someone's going to get acquired or if uh, someone's going to merge with another company. But what you can do is look at, well, how how robust is the the product itself and the environment around it, the money going back into the product, the consultant supporting it, the value-added resellers, the, the stability and financial health of the company itself, all that stuff you kind of look at and say, okay, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this product or this vendor compared to others? And so that absolutely is something that becomes even more important for some of these smaller uh, targeted niche solutions as well. A lot of times they have PE funding behind them, but when there's PE funding behind them, the good news is they've got R&D dollars typically going into the product, but the bad news 
or unknown news, I should say, is that they're likely to get acquired by someone and you don't know who. And if you hate working with Oracle and Oracle buys the product that you just bought, then you're kind of stuck with Oracle for as long as you're using that product. It just as an example, and I, I am sort of picking on Oracle because that's one vendor that we do hear negative things about just their ability to do business with them, but they're not the only ones. There's others too. So. Sure. And, and speaking of vendors and partners, I was really curious as to your feedback specifically on, on Dan's overall view of the RFP process, because I, I feel like the RFP process personally is completely irrelevant in, nowadays. And so I wondered if you kind of fell up, along those same lines of more of those collaborative strategy sessions and kind of needs evaluation was much more effective than RFPs or what your experience had been like in the industry. Yeah, I, I tend to be more, I tend to lean more towards your way of thinking on, on that, on the RFP uh, view of things. I think RFPs are helpful, but they're, they shouldn't be the focal point of an evaluation by any means. I mean, that's just more of a quite frankly, way to cover yourself and have it documented of what the vendor's telling you so that if there's ever a problem or there's functionality that doesn't pan out, you have it documented that they said they do and therefore they need to deliver it. Um, so it's more of a belt and suspender move, I'd say, more than anything. I, I value it more in that way than I would actually uh, evaluating the, the software. But um, with, with new emerging technologies like this, though, you may not know enough about what your requirements are because it's establishing a whole new set of requirements for you or, and I even hate to say the word requirements, but more potential business solutions that you're trying to solve. These are new things oftentimes that you're not even thinking about. Um, and so putting it together in an RFP may not be super beneficial. Those collaborative sessions could actually be a lot more helpful in um, kind of identifying what the needs or opportunities are to solve your, your business challenges with, with the technology. Certainly. And I, I feel like I feel in the air a, a top 10 financial list emerging technologies coming in our future just because this got like my wheels turning about, you know, well, what if there was a platform to raise capital, which there is a lot now when we talk about things like GoFundMe or even selling private label products before they're actually produced and what that looks like as far as um, raising PE funds or anything like that, um, and or buying music online, buying, we talked about kind of those digital assets where people are playing millions of dollars for uh, a digital art piece and those types of, of different pieces. So I think it might be something interesting to compile all of those and, and kind of take a look at where that's going because I, again, never thought of half of the things that Dan had mentioned. So definitely a, an amazing learning experience with that. Yeah, absolutely. And you've given me a challenge or a homework takeaway to figure out uh, the top 10 fintech technologies out there in the space right now. So Yeah, and a call from our audience too. If you know of any, obviously this is a, a new area for us to investigate. Let us know. Drop some in the comments and, and we can kind of investigate what those look like and talk about them on future episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, love to hear anyone's feedback here that's listening that, that's familiar with different fintech uh, options or even just types of solutions, whether it's a specific vendor or, or types of ways you've seen fintech used to transform your business or some of your peers, organizations, whatever the case may be. So good stuff. Well, um, fascinating uh, stuff, this whole fintech space. And my brain is actually a little bit tired now addressing this area that I don't know a lot about and it's getting super analytical. So it's probably time to totally shift gears into a 180 
uh, on this on this episode, which we are going to do. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back from that break, we're going to have uh, Nate Stroer uh, recently had a chance to sit down with Kyler and I talking about uh, resistance to change and some client case studies around resistance to change. So we're going to sort of counterbalance this whole analytical fintech discussion with now the organizational change side of things, getting a little bit more soft, touchy-feely, uh, intangible uh, aspects of uh, change management. And however, I will say if you're a finance person and you really enjoy the fintech discussion, you of all people probably need to listen to this next segment more than anyone just because you want to uh, add this uh, this uh, intangible dimension uh, and understanding of, of change management to, to our discussion here today. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 50. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and uh, we, we're going to shift gears a bit here and talk about resistance to change within the realm of change management. And specifically, we're going to play you a video clip that Kyler and I recorded with Nate Stroer, who is a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage Consulting. And uh, the three of us sat down recently at our office, our new office, by the way, um, that we just moved into, uh, and to talk about uh, resistance to change and just what some client case studies are around that. So uh, we're going to play you this clip and then we'll, we'll come back and debrief after that. But uh, let's go ahead and roll the clip here. I'm Kyler Cheatham here with Nate Stroher and Eric Kimberling, and today we are talking about how to build a culture for digital transformation. So thanks so much for being here today. Um, obviously, we talk about culture as a, a main piece and a, a key tactic to ensuring digital transformation success. So I wonder, Nate, we'll start with you, if you can talk about what does it mean to have a certain culture within your organization? Can you just give us a baseline definition? Yeah, I think it's it's having everyone, having a, a team and having everyone with the same beliefs and attitudes and direction as far as what's best for the organization and feeling what's best for everyone in, as individuals and keeping all of those aligned towards a common goal. Excellent. And how would you as a leader be responsible for creating a culture of digital transformation? Eric, maybe you can help us with that one. Well, I think the first thing is to set a vision for why change is important. It's difficult to get people excited and to create that culture of transformation or innovation, whatever you want to call it, unless you can tie it to a broader vision. So if our broader vision is to grow the company and better service our customers or our stakeholders or constituents or whatever our goals as an organization are, we need to tie the transformation and that culture of transformation to those bigger picture goals. So that's probably the biggest, most immediate thing is to make sure that your team and your whole organization understands that. 
Yeah, and a, a lot of our clients sometimes are going through a digital transformation because they need to, especially after you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, and a lot of that can cause cultural disruption. Nate, how do you go about kind of assessing the current state of a culture within an organization so you can start to kind of shift it or change it? Well, I think it's I think it's important to to establish a baseline as far as where you're going and and get everyone in the same room or on the same Zoom call and and really sit down and spend spend time and I would say this is one of the areas where you can't spend enough time really talking about where you are as an organization, what your values are, what your missions are, and where you're going as an organization. And we we have so many clients that when we we start with um, sort of this executive visioning session, it it they tend to say, yeah, we're we're all on the same page. We all know where we're going. After about ten minutes into one of these executive visioning workshops, where you're talking about what they stand for and what their values are and where they're going as an organization, you really find out that what everyone thinks is a common understanding isn't. So it the, the more you can sit down and 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 verbalize what that is and and what that means to every individual as far as a, a leadership team and the rest of the organization organization the better off you'll be so what happens eric after you go through this assessment process that nate kind of outlined for us and you find that you have a broken culture what are what are some steps to make sure that you can change that and can you change a culture of an organization you can but you have to have you can change it but you have to have a deliberate plan so you want to make sure that you have a, a, an effective strategy and plan for doing so and you also have to recognize it's not going to happen overnight. So a lot of clients that hire us, for example, have a one or two or three year, whatever, however many years it is, a transformation. And it turns out they have a broken culture or they don't have a culture of transformation or innovation or a culture that supports that overall uh, transformation. And so while we can make movements on the needle, you know, we can move the needle towards whatever future state culture we're trying to create, it's not going to happen overnight. So it's a matter of putting in motion sort of that low-hanging fruit of, of starting to bake that culture into the DNA of the organization at the same time you're going through whatever transformation you might be going through. Right. And and what kind of plan, what are some aspects of that plan um, that you can utilize to shift your culture? Well, there's, there's a lot of things that you can do around, first of all, the types of people you're hiring. Mm-hmm. It could be that your recruiting practices and criteria change a little bit to reflect the culture you're trying to move towards. So, for example, if you're trying to uh, augment your highly tenured staff that are maybe only know one way of doing things because mm-hmm. they've worked for your organization for so long. Maybe part of the recruiting policy is to figure out how do we how do we enable us to bring in younger talent or talent with different skill sets or a more diverse talent base, whatever whatever it may be. So that it oftentimes starts with your recruiting processes, but it's also the way you compensate people. I mean, the way you mm-hmm. you can be compensating people for the right behavior that you're trying to drive. And obviously measuring them on those those sorts of things, um, the the leadership that the executive team demonstrates to the rest of the organization is very important. So oftentimes, leaders will have in their heads what they want the culture to be, and they kind of intuitively know the direction the culture needs to go, but they don't know they don't recognize how much work they have to put into setting the tone and setting the example for the rest of the organization. So those are just a few things you can do or examples of things that might come out of a cultural transformation plan. Yeah, absolutely, great examples. Um, Nate, I know you work with a lot of our clients that might have more of a remote environment or a global footprint. How do you help them establish a culture or align them when they, they aren't in the same room together? 
you know, I, I think the key is is just constant communication. And it, it, there, there are a lot of challenges. Um, you know, we even go to these happy hours through Zoom that we were all doing about a year ago. But I, I, I do think that there's that just getting everyone, the constant communication, the constant uh, delivery of the message of where you are, where you're going, and, and the, the interaction, be it via Zoom or if anyone can uh, hook up in the individual cities, that sort of thing. Uh, just the more you can do with that and the more you can keep people on the same page and, and, and working together with whatever technology you have. Some people only have phones, some people um, have kind of limited Zoom access, whatever that might be. But it, it, it's just really communicating and, and making sure that everyone's on the same page and, and that you're, you're doing the best that you can with, with what you've got. Right, absolutely. And, and Eric, I, I know obviously you've worked with many of our global clients. Do you ever experience an organization that might have culture A here and culture B here and culture C here? And how, how do you kind of help them to assimilate to a, a strategic goal around a digital transformation? Yeah, that's extremely common, in, not only in situations where there's multinational involvement mm -hmm. where you have offices throughout the world, in which case you're dealing with not just your differences in your internal culture, but also just geographic culture as well. So there's a couple layers there. So that there's that piece of it, and even a domestic organization that's operating in one country or one region of the world with a common culture, when they go out and buy different companies and they go through acquisitions, typically you're dealing with different cultures and mm -hmm. you've got to figure out how to tie it all together. So the question's pertinent in a lot of ways. Um, but the way, the best way to go about it is to, first of all, align on what the common overarching strategy is, first of all. What, what are we trying to be when we grow up as an organization? And then the next layer below that is operationally, what do we want to be? You know, What's that operating model going to look like? And ultimately that oftentimes will feed into what should the culture be or what does the culture need to be to support that? And once you've defined that sort of global common culture that you're trying to create, knowing that there's going to be some local variations and whatnot, then you can start to say, let's do a gap analysis. This is the culture we want. None of us are quite there yet, probably, within the organization. So let's do a gap analysis and figure out where the differences are. And we typically will do that via the organizational assessments that we do uh, with our clients. Very interesting. And and. I want to kind of transition to the actual digital transformation um, activity and environment. So, so Nate, when you have a, a culture, does the software actually have to match the culture? Or how important is that when it comes to selecting the right technologies for your organization? I think it's in, important and in, in where we start a lot of our activities is where are you now and where do you want to be? And we, we usually try and keep that time frame around three years, uh, three to five years, because beyond that, you're, you're really kind of, it's an educated guess at that point. But really, it's, it's sitting down saying, where are you realistically and where do you want to be? And, and not, not that the technology will get you there, but, or looking not at what the technology solution is, but what do you need to get to where you need to be? And sometimes that's that's the latest and greatest technology. Sometimes that's that's maybe not. Sometimes you you can um, you can do with something that's that's less than the, the, the best or the the most ex uh, elaborate technology solution. But it's really saying, you know what what's going to be the best solution for where you want to be? And, and what's going to enable you to get to where you want to be in the future. Mm -hmm. A good example of that would be, if I could jump in, is if you look at two products that are very different and can or should be heavily influenced by culture when making a decision, would be like S SAP S4HANA, for example. 
and Microsoft Dynamics. Mm -hmm. You know, Microsoft Dynamics is generally a more flexible product. It gives you a lot more leeway in terms of how you can change the workflows and the processes, whereas SAP S4HANA is a bit more rigid, more common, more standardized. And if you're, a, if you're an organization that's highly entrepreneurial and you, and you value flexibility, or if you're an organization trying to become more flexible, you're too rigid as it is, so you're trying to drive more flexibility and nimbleness or agility through your organization, you're probably going to lean toward, you should be leaning more towards a, a Microsoft D365 in this example. If you try to implement SAP in that environment, you're just going to end up back to where you are, which is you're rigid, you're, you, know, you have a common way of doing things, and it's hard for you to change. And so you really have to look at sort of the intangibles of the technology's strengths and weaknesses and make sure it aligns with your culture and what you're what you're trying to drive in the improvements. Sure. And and speaking of, of culture, I know we, we work with a lot of different um, cultural dynamics within our, our client portfolio. We have that entrepreneurial, almost cowboy kind of reactive culture. How do you help those organizations kind of standardize when that's really not a behavior they really work with? Um, or establish business processes that need to be established before you s select a technology? How do you help them kind of do that when you have an organization like that? Well, I'd say the first thing is to make sure that you're uh, set, tying it all back to the a bigger picture goal and vision. Why, why are we doing this? We're not asking you to standardize just because we like standardization. Yeah, sure. It's because we're trying to drive some sort of value or we're trying to uh, better enable a better customer experience, better employee experience, whatever our goals are. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to recognize you don't necessarily need to say standardize everything. You know, it might be that there's certain parts of your business that you want to retain some flexibility and variation in your processes and then other parts you want to create more of a standard model. So I think you sort of have to cherry pick and identify more surgically or targeted where you're trying to standardize and be deliberate about it rather than just say we want to standardize for standardization sake across the whole company. Yeah, so it really should match almost the DNA of the organization and leverage that for the actual new technology. Yeah, yeah and, a, and a good example of that is we were talking earlier this week with a client that's looking at both an ERP and a CRM package. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at the, the sort of the culture of the finance and accounting department, it's very, very rigid. It's very uh, controls based. It's there is a there's a solution. You you create a product. You invoice for the product. You collect for the product. It's a it's a very set process. Sales is a very loose process. It's a lot more. I think someone described it once as artistic. It you, there's just different ways to to sell. And so the CRM package is really going to be something where you don't you're probably not going to be looking at a lot of standards. You're going to be looking at the ways that you can fit their sales organization and make them better at what they do versus the, the accounting and controls. It's usually about the same. Yeah. We need to make sure that we have this in place. Very interesting. So there is some standardization within a culture, but then there's also a culture of, of maybe more entrepreneurial within the same organization, it sounds like. All right, good stuff. Well, thanks for that uh, discussion, uh, Kyler and Nate. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more transformation ground control, and we're going to talk a little bit more, building on some of the concepts we talk about here uh, in that clip, talking about resistance to change. We'll be right back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. 
With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. So where does organizational change fit with culture? I'll go to you, Eric. Well, culture is part of or should be part of your overall organizational change plan. So when you're thinking about how are we going to change the organization, how are we going to move from point A to point B, we should be looking at how are we going to drive culture. And then the other part of it is you also have to view culture in terms of your current state as sort of a, a limitation or a risk that we have to mitigate. Mm -hmm. So our current culture might actually hold us back and prevent mm -hmm. us from being able to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. So it's, it's a bit of both. You have to have uh, recognize where the limitations are of your current culture and then build culture into your change plan so that you're deliberately addressing where you're trying to get with your future state culture. And does the, does the change plan end, Nate, after a technology in implementation? No, and I think, I think that's, it, it's actually, I think, really more just the beginning. And, and because I think you constantly need to be readdressing that. And we, we even talk about in, in our projects, once you go live, there's really that optimization phase where you, you've got to spend a, a six month to a year period really getting to know mm -hmm what the technology can do and and then and then it's when you really start to take the technology and say how can we take what we know about the capabilities of the technology and use it to support where we want to go so i think that when we start with a selection process that's really one of probably four steps it's the selection it's the implementation it's go live and then it's that post live optimization that really is where you start to to fine tune the car for lack well, of a better way to put it. Excellent. So I want to ask you, Eric, about um, some emerging technologies and culture. We've had a lot of newer technologies in the last few years, whether it's AI, machine learning, predictive analytics, that have kind of called, or caused a culture of fear just from the unknown. So how can you as a culture be in a place where you're ready for those types of technologies without you know, having any disruption or fear with, within your overall business community? Well, the key thing is to get ahead of what the impacts of that emerging technology might be so that you can clearly articulate to your team what that's going to look like and ultimately make the team part of that analysis or assessment of what the future state is going to look like. As an example, oftentimes what we see is when companies are implementing, for example, machine learning mm -hmm. or artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, something that's going to automate highly manual processes, you're eliminating certain tasks within right. the organization intentionally. And if you don't have a clear vision of what happens to my time, for example, when you eliminate 50% of my tasks because now you're going to automate it, I'm going to revert to fear because I don't know, are you, are you going to cut my job? What are you going to make me do? And if you don't have ans good answers to those questions, fear is going to take over and it's going to disrupt your culture in a, in a negative way. So one of the biggest blind spots that organizations have is they think, well, we need this new technology and it's going to be a game changer for us, but they fail to recognize that it, it can also completely 
destroy your culture mm -hmm. and your culture can actually backfire on you in those cases if you don't take the time to, to lay that out. So really defining what the future state business processes are, what people's roles and responsibilities are gonna look like. If you're gonna eliminate half my job, define for me what I'm gonna be doing. And it's not enough to just say, well, now you can spend time doing things you like better. Well, what, I, I like doing a lot of things. What do you want me to do? Like, what should my job be? Right. Those are the kinds of things that you have to put a lot more thought into than most organizations uh, intuitively do. Yeah, yeah, and Nate, where does leadership trust sit within that overall process? Because I would assume, you know, you might say something to your team, but as a leader and executive in the organization, they need to believe you. So how do you, how do you create that that culture of transparency and trust? Well, I think, you know, back to the to the communications theme, and I think that's what's really important. And I think it's you, you hear often that that new technology will make you less uh, transactional, more strategic. That sort of mentality of you're you're going to be doing your job differently. And I think it's I think it's important. And we had a, a client, and and it was very interesting because the CEO in almost every meeting talked about how are our how as an organization our, our how are our jobs going to change? That's a little harder to say than it should have been. Um, and, and really, and harped consistently on, I built a team of people that I think are going to take us to the next level and they need to be able to think strategically. So he consistently communicated throughout this whole entire project of, here's why you're here, here's why we've chosen this technology, and here's why we've chosen the path that we're going on because I think that you all are going to take us to this next level and we're gonna give you the tools to get there. So a long answer, or short answer really long, is that I think the, the more you can communicate where you're going, why everyone's there, what you know, why why we're doing what we're doing and where it's going to take us, the better off you are because it, it eliminates the culture of fear. It eliminates a lot of side talk and it, it gives everyone the vision so everyone knows that they're all on the same page. Excellent. And so for a culture that may be a little bit broken or not ready for this, can they go through a digital transformation or do you recommend waiting for their cultural assessments to be at a certain level or um, scoring in a, a certain area? It's a good question. I mean, I, as consultants, we have the luxury of not being confined by internal realities mm -hmm. and the day-to-day -day realities of, of organizations. But I'd say in general, uh, there are times where you may want to defer your technology mm -hmm. uh, deployment or you should focus less on the technology and more on what, how can we change the culture, how can we also improve our business processes and then figure out how does technology support that. So I think it depends on how big of a gap there is. If there's this huge gap you're trying to make, you're trying to make this huge leap from where you are today to fully automated, integrated processes, and today you're fully manual, segregated, siloed, whatever, you might want to think about, rather than just throwing in new technology and hoping for the best that you're going to make that leap, you might want to think about getting a foundation in place to get some work going on the cultural piece, the operational piece, to find what your business processes are going to look like, because that's the stuff that's going to take the longest in your mm -hmm. technology deployment anyway, and that's the stuff that will hold you back from deploying or adapting new technology. So if you can get that foundation in place, you may want to kick out the technology transformation itself, focus on getting your ducks in a row with your culture, with your operations, with roles and responsibilities, and then figure out how technology fits on top of that. Now, the reason this is such a challenge partly is because it's not intuitive to all organizations, mm -hmm. but also because software vendors will put immense pressure on you to say, no, don't worry about that stuff. Use our technology to help you get there. And the reality is you can't consume that technology if, you're, if you've got that big of a gap. So doing that assessment that, that Nate was talking about earlier and, and really understanding the gap between 
where you are today culturally, where you're headed, and the bigger that gap, the more likely it is you do want to spend more time up front doing more of the cultural work, the operational work, before you start messing with new technologies. Some pre-work. Mm. Yep, yeah, and definitely. You, you can also consider transitionary work too. You know, it's a lot of sure. times people think, well, I don't want to delay my project. Mm -hmm. Well, you're really not delaying it. You're just being realistic about yeah. I'm doing the stuff that's going to take the longest. I'm starting on that first so that by the time I come in behind all that work with new technology, the, the organization can consume it and we can implement it a lot faster than if we try to swim upstream and deploy it in the current environment. Right, right. Or you'll be, you'll be ready for it, right? Um, so I want to end with talking about kind of the end end user, which would be the customer, right? Or whomever you're um, essentially selling your services to. So can can customers sense culture? And if so, what is that relationship to your products and goods and services, your internal culture, and the customer? Well, I think you know. I think it's it's probably. I, I think. Your, your culture and, and where you are and the, the shared vision and the, the more you have a, a strong team that's working in, um, in unison and, and, and towards a common goal, the better, are you, the better off your position to take advantages in the future. And as I, ref, as I talked about earlier, like that organization where they, they said, you know, here's where we are, here's where we want to be, and here's how we're going to get there. It's really kind of that combination of people, processes, and technology, mm -hmm. and it's it's building that culture. It's it's enabling them with the technology, and it's putting processes and systems in place that are really going to get everyone to to be in the best chance for success. It's not going to guarantee success, but I I always say that it's the organizations that are really buttoned up on those three areas are going to be best positioned to take advantage of opportunities in the future. Yeah, and you, you look at organizations that are that have a culture of uh, customer obsession let's mm -hmm. just say and uh, the company that comes to mind is Zappos you know, the mm -hmm. shoe company is historically known for being almost obsessed with customer service or you look at Nordstrom and companies like that where they've built a culture around the customer experience and customer service and it's very clear to, to us as customers not just because they say they do it but because you walk in and you get the service mm -hmm. you get um, if you're an organization that is very siloed doesn't collaborate points fingers at each other because right. it's not my job to take care of this customer, it's your job. Mm -hmm. Customers pick up on that. And so yeah. your culture absolutely does sort of bleed through uh, to the rest of the organization, whether it's obviously it's usually not intentional, but I, I'd say, yeah, absolutely. Most, most of the time customers can sense the, the culture uh, either positively or negatively. Absolutely. Um, well, this has been such a great conversation. It sounds like culture really does affect a lot of the pieces of digital transformation. So if you'd like to learn more about digital transformation and culture, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or feel free to reach out to Nate or Eric. Their contact information is below. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And uh, Kyler, we just had this discussion with you, Nate, and I talking about resistance to change. What were some of your thoughts and observations after that conversation and, and seeing it again here in the, the replay in this, this discussion? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm just fascinated that you, are, you and Nate and team are able to go into a company and explain to them that their culture isn't optimal for overall transformation and they are risking failure if they don't understand and assess that. And the more I got to thinking about it, the more of a, a delicate conversation I'm sure that must be. And I know you had cited kind of the data-driven approach that you take when you are kind of helping companies learn, specifically executives, learn about that um, overall culture. And, and then I got to, to kind of think about our executive alignment conversation. And what if you have one executive that's like, oh, yes, I absolutely see this and kind of absorb this and understand the importance. And then you have another one that's not on the same page and kind of feels like it is more fluffy than it is um, actual hard strategy. So I wonder if that's something that you've ever experienced and how you kind of dealt with that as far as working and helping support these clients through understanding. Yeah, it is something we, we see often. Um, and the best way I can think of that I've, that I've seen work and that our team uses to navigate that is just to understand what language that person speaks. A lot of times, um, and I'll pick on finance people for a second just because we were talking about fintech earlier, um, but when you get like a finance person, like a CFO or a controller, and they're involved in a digital transformation, a lot of times they, they're the ones that sort of resist the idea of change management or, or addressing culture in this case, um, because you can't see it, feel it, touch it, you can't quantify it, you can't put a number on it. Um, in general, you can't. But what we do is the approach we take, we do put numbers on it. We do give a quantitative analysis of the different components of of culture. And it, it is somewhat subjective. Yes, it's not as uh, it's not as predictable as, as a, a dollar or a cent or a euro, I should say, uh, or any other currency of your choice. Um, but you can apply some rigor and analytical rigor to that, that oftentimes that'll speak the language of someone like a controller or like an engineering type that doesn't think that way naturally. So you kind of have to speak their language, whatever it is. And it's important that you don't just try to keep forcing the same message or the same approach of what might be perceived as too touchy feely. If you're getting the pushback that is too touchy feely and there's no tangible business value, well then let's show what the tangible business value is because it's there. If you're doing change management right and you're addressing culture and resistance to change right, there is measurable business value. I'll give you an example. One is that, um, you know, when people talk about uh, risk management in general and resistance to change and failure to uh, learn new processes at, at the time of go live, if you go live with new technologies and your people aren't ready and your culture is experiencing culture shock as a result of that transformation and you can't ship products for 30 days, you have to quantify that risk and say, this is what it would cost us if we couldn't ship product for 30 days. Um, and when you put in those terms, oftentimes people will come to the conclusion of, okay, so maybe I do need to think about my culture and think about the disruption that might cause to my business if I don't address that and other key components of change management. Absolutely. And, and to give Dan, our last guest, some, some credit, um, he did say that, that the culture of innovation, which I had to hold on to my seat when he said it, because when you ask that question of like, what is the number one thing that is needed? 
he he said Coulter, and I thought we were going to go in a completely different direction. Um, so just to give our finance guys out there some credit, it sounds like that um, that innovation and that overall under, just understanding of business culture is something that's becoming much more mainstream, which is great news for people like us that like to talk nonstop about organizational change management. So right. Yeah, every, every episode we, we come back to change management somehow. Yep. This, this episode is no different. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and I wanted to touch on an, another piece of kind of understanding the frontlines experience, which we kind of talked about really seeing the culture holistically and understanding those business processes from start to finish. How do you, do you ever have to like coach executives on what their frontline experience is after you've done all of these different assessments of not only their processes, but also their people? Yeah, it usually does out, out of this conversation or out of that analysis, the organizational assessments, um, usually the conversation heads toward, you know, what does this mean to your culture or what kind of organization are you, um, are you really? And oftentimes there's a, there's a disconnect between that, the analytical results and the perception that they had going into the, the implementation so, or into the transformation. So it typically is pretty eye-opening. Um, it's, it's oftentimes surprising to executives and they can't believe that, you know, the culture isn't perfect or that people aren't super, uh, perfectly um, happy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, but then you have other times where, which, which I think is dangerous where you get executives that will try to downplay or justify just, it's, it's more of a misunderstanding on the employees parts. That's not really how things are. And so we have to do the coaching of, well, perception is reality, whether it's justified or not, doesn't matter at this point. What matters is that that is the perception and that is the culture. Yeah, definitely. And the, and when we talk about a resistance specifically, we kind of talked about how you identify that. And Nate had mentioned there's often pockets of resistance within the organization and identifying those is, you know, a main piece to understanding where there might be bottlenecks or challenges or barriers within that organization. So when we talk about identifying these pockets, is that something you then bring to the department or leader within that and say, hey, you know, we identified this area as a red pocket of resistance that we feel like might be a, a real big challenge to get kind of overall user adoption for the new system. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, and and the, the more people we can share that analysis with and that um, the, the, the recommend, not the recommendations, but the output of that analysis, um, the more people that see that, the more you can get alignment on, okay, now we kind of see where the warts are, what parts of our culture are going to hold us back, what those pitfalls and pockets of resistance are going to be and where they're going to be and what the root cause is going to be. It just gives you more tangible things to work with rather than saying, we need to worry about change management. And, and you know, to, that's too broad for most people to understand. And that's why change management gets such a bad rap is because you can't just say we need more change management and people are going to resist change. That's, that's true. But if you don't understand that beyond that, you're not going to be able to do anything with it. So if you can say, well, I'll give you an example. Our sales team is likely to resist um, a new CRM system because now we're putting more administrative burden on them and they're not selling as much and they're going to think they're not going to make as much commission. And it's not that they're not excited about the, the technology. It's not that they don't want to support the organization, but it's that they think they're not doing what they're best at and they're not making money on the, on the, your, their, their income is going to be addressed by that or uh, impacted by that. Yeah. And as a, a, you know, a career salesperson that despises CRM systems. I can say I'm the main resistor to that, mostly because 
it's I'm the top salesperson. There's no reason for me to do all of this ridiculousness of saying, you know, where did I go today or what what happened today with my my customers because I obviously am producing the most revenue. So I can definitely say to all of the salespeople out there, I, I feel you when it comes to CRM. But definitely important to be able to um, prove just data driven success um, as as not only for your business but also for your overall career as well. Right. So. Um, I understand that for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, we see it a lot. I mean, and, and it's easy to pick on salespeople in some ways because a lot of times they are the sources of resistance. But you know, maybe that's almost too obvious of a of a potential source of resistance. You have to look at every single department and work group within the department because they all have their unique world they're working in, living in, and uh, things are working well, things that aren't working well, subcultures within the company all that stuff, but the more you can um, give something tangible as an output and set of recommendations coming from your organizational assessment, the more effective you're going to be in addressing those challenges. Yeah, and as I put you know, my executive hat on, I try and kind of think through that process or, or what I would do for my team if that was something that someone showcased me. I mean, the, the leader in me would go directly to them and be like, you know, what's going on, guys? And that sounds like that's probably not the best approach. So do you often have to, again, coach executives to say, okay, we found this pocket of resistance. Please don't run down the hallway to you know Donna and accounting and say, why are you resisting this new system? I assume there's a better way to do that. Um, and you, you probably have to coach executives on that as well. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah. And, and part of that coaching is not just the approach, but also understanding why Donna and accounting is, is resisting the change. I mean, what is it? That, there's something driving it. It's usually not nefarious. It's usually not a, um, uh, intentional act of sorts. It's usually there's something that we can all understand hidden in there. It's because they, you know, for example, some of the more common ones is it's going to affect my compensation going to affect my job security. It's going to affect my sense of worth within the organization. It, you're you're going to undermine the heroics that I've been able to bring to the table to overcome all these deficiencies we have in our operations and our systems. You, now, all of a sudden, you're talking about taking that away from me, and that's what's driving it. That's the source. So you have to go to that source and say, okay, you value the heroics that you bring to the table of being able to be the only person that has this tribal knowledge that's going to be able to solve these problems every day. Well, that's great. Let's apply that somewhere else because now we're going to automate it and we're going to put technology over here. Here's where you can help us apply that same level of pride and leverage that same skill set and provide that same value, maybe even more value to the organizations in other ways. So that's where organizational design comes in. That's where the communication of the organizational design and defining what people's jobs and roles and responsibilities are going to be. That's why those pieces are so important because then you have a vision of here's how Donna is going to add even more value in this post transformation world um, after we automate part of her job that she's doing right now. And so that's the, that's the connection of the dots that you have to make to be effective in that. And that's what you have to coach the managers and mid-level management on and help them, help them articulate and define even for themselves before they can define it for others. Interesting. And, and when does that happen on kind of the timeline of the digital transformation or when it's should it happen? I sh I should say. As soon as you can. I mean, it, honestly, it's usually never soon enough, but the sooner you can do it, the less painful to be later. Even if you are behind the eight ball or you're doing it later than you'd like, um, it's still the, so the sooner you do it, the less pain there's going to be later on. And the more you're going to settle things down because things get so chaotic when you start running into problems with these projects where, you know, you're going through testing and there's bugs you're trying to work out. There's 
exceptions that someone forgot to work through in the scenarios, um, the data still needs cleansed. And, you know, there's all these things that happen and build up as you get closer and closer to go live. The last thing you need is now to throw on top of it. All of our employees are freaking out because they don't like the changes or they're, they're threatened in some way. Now you're just created this environment of total chaos. And that's why, quite frankly, all these projects fail and end up a lot of times and more often than they should, they end up in a total disaster because you're added this other layer now on top of all the normal day-to-day project challenges. Now you add on the organizational challenges and the whole thing's just total chaos. And that's what leads you to a go live where it's a disaster. You can't ship product. You can't close the books and people sort of throw their hands in the air, up in the air and uh, give up it oftentimes on the, on those types of projects. Yeah. And, and you mentioned globalization. I know we work with a lot of global organizations here at third stage. Is that something that different cultural dynamics need to be considered when it comes to different, even we call it pockets of resistance, but what about like more of location resistance when it comes to maybe your, um, your Latin American office is ready to go and this all makes sense for them, but you go up to your, your office in, in Finland and they're not kind of on the same page. Do you ever see that as a part of kind of the resistance overall dynamic? Yeah. Absolutely. That's a huge part of it. And, um, you know, even the same company, like you said, within different parts of the world will have different pockets of resistance. So for example, you know, I'll give you an example. We have, if you have a client and we've had clients that have operations both in say, um, Western Europe and Asia Pacific or, or in Asia. And the, the cultures are so different there in that, um, you know, in Asia employees in many organizations are more likely to sort of follow a hierarchy and um, and follow their leaders without asking a lot of questions. But in Western Europe and certainly in the United States, you get more, there's more challenging of assumptions and more, um, you know, more need or want to collaborate and kind of work together uh, in many ways. So, you know, and that's a broad generalization, which is always dangerous to do. But within one organization, you can see those two differences or even multiple differences beyond that that, that factor in as well. And I assume then a different approach is needed. And that's kind of what you strategize in those upfront sessions. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And my question actually stems from um, our uh, South African office, Clifford, my husband who works at third stage was trying to explain to him that he has jury duty over here in the States. And he, and Clifford was like, I don't understand what that means in any way. (laughs) So, so he's trying to explain to our clients in the African market that that's what that means. And I heard him explain the American justice system multiple times in the last couple of days. Right. <laughs> but um, just a, another reminder that each area really does need their own strategies and their own assessment of their unique needs. And um, I think you and Nate really kind of established how that works for our clients here at Third Stage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, that was a good good discussion. Thank you for being part of the um, not only the ongoing the podcast episode, but also that discussion in particular with with Nate and I. Um, and uh, we're going to wrap it up at this point. But I want to thank you for being part of the show again, Kyler, and thank you to the audience for listening in here today. Again, you can find us with new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast platforms. To be sure to check us out next Wednesday, and uh, be sure to subscribe. Leave us comments, feedback, anything you've got uh, to make this show better. We'd love to hear your feedback. So uh, hope you're all doing well. Look forward to seeing you next time. And you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll see you soon. Take care. Mm-hmm.